Well, sometimes when you get a gift, uh, it needs a little bit of explanation before you understand its true value. I got a gift this year that was some cufflinks, and when I got them, I thought, oh, cufflinks, I like cufflinks. And then it was explained to me, you know, these cufflinks are made from pottery that was broken during an earthquake and tsunami in Japan, and the person uh, that retrieved them is a believer and makes uh, beautiful things out of things that are broken anyway. And there was a story about how, how this was related to the people that gave it to me. And then it became so much more valuable because you understand it. And so maybe you got something this Christmas as well that you thought, oh, that's great, until you found out that, that well, there's this explanation behind that. I remember that um, when John MacArthur, the, our pastor in, in Los Angeles, for his 35th, 35th anniversary as pastor of the church, um, they got him, the church got him a pen as a gift. And I remember thinking, okay, it's a pen. Um, and then I heard, no, this pen that he's going to get is a special pen. Alan, you were there. You probably remember that as well. And I, I thought, well, I've, no matter how special the pen is, it's still just a pen. And then came the day that it was presented and an explanation was given. This was the explanation. In the year 1715, a fleet of 11 Spanish galleons set sail from Havana, transporting priceless treasures of gold and silver from the New World back to the King of Spain, Philip V. They encountered a severe hurricane and 10 of the 11 ships sank. The value of their lost treasure is incalculable. The gold and silver remained entombed at the bottom of the ocean for hundreds of years until the 1960s when an investor by the name of Kenneth Parker the Parker Pen Company, helped to fund a salvage attempt which yielded a find of some of the precious silver. Parker then used the silver to fashion a pen known as the Parker 75 Spanish Treasure Fleet. There were very few of these pens made, of course, and they're considered priceless. Ronald Reagan used a Parker 75 to sign a treaty with Mikhail Gorbachev. In 1973, the Vietnam Peace Accord was signed using a Parker 75. On the pen is an emblem of the mint of Mexico from where the silver originated and the insignia of King Philip V, as well as the date in which the pen was fashioned, 1969, which was the same year that John MacArthur, at the age of 29, accepted a call to be the pastor of Grace Community Church. A wealthy collector was able to procure the precious pen from a safe in Europe on behalf of the church to gift to their pastor. And that's what's so great about that pen. So I just thought I'd tell the elders that that's the standard for my 35th anniversary. <laughs> but sometimes understanding the value of the gift and what it took to procure the gift adds to your appreciation of the gift that you receive. And this is what Peter's talking about this morning. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. He has been talking about the value of our salvation. Remember that Peter, 1 Peter is a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians that have been scattered abroad because of persecution. So they are now in various cities in Asia Minor, and they're receiving this letter and passing it along from church to church, encouraging them that the persecution that they're getting and the fact that, the fact that they've been scattered from their homes is not a sign of God's judgment. On the contrary, it's a sign of God's blessing that God foreknew that this would happen, that he is with them in the struggle and in the suffering, that he's using the suffering, and that they ought to set their minds on what is coming in the future, not on the present. And this is a very applicable 
um, series for us. We've titled the series, Keep Calm and Carry On. Uh, that really is the theme of First Peter, that no matter what's going on in the chaos of the politics or the economy or if there's pandemics or whatever's happening in your own personal life or in the world, just keep calm, take a deep breath, don't panic. God is in control, and he's with you, and he's going to help you. And the way that you get through the difficulty in the present is to keep your hope on what's coming in the future and the value of that and how it's incorruptible and undefiled and cannot be taken from you. And so this is where we find ourselves in the flow of this letter. And last week, even though it was Christmas, we just carried on with the text because it was such a, a great reminder of what the gift is, the ransom payment is that we've been given. So let me pick it up from verse 17 for you. First Peter 1, verse 17. And if, or since, you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And that's as far as we're going to get this morning, verses 20 and 21. Remember last week we tried to discern the difference between worthless and priceless. Um, we looked at the white elephant that was given to the, to the Pope and how he found this to be priceless, but then realized it was actually just worthless and, and a terrible thing to have. That's why we have white elephant gifts. And we saw that there was something worthless that we've been handed down by our forefathers, that there's a lot of things that we have and there's a lot of things that we do and believe simply because people before us believed those things and taught them to us. And that those are futile ways when it comes to salvation, just traditions and superstitions that we sometimes just inherit and we just do things and don't even know why. But instead, we've been ransomed by the, something that's not worthless but priceless, the precious blood of the lamb, a spotless lamb, as we said, mint condition, that he had never, ever sinned. And that's why he could die on our behalf and rescue us and ransom us and pay the debt that we owed God through his blood because he was spotless. And so that's where we found ourselves. And this morning, we're going to look at four aspects of Christ's work which make us appreciate our faith in him, make us appreciate our salvation even more. So we learned that this is a, a, a precious ransom, the preciousness of his blood, the priceless work of Christ. And now we're going to look at four aspects just to find out more about that gift that he gave us so that we can appreciate it more. And the four aspects of Christ's work is that it was planned, it is personal, it is particular, and it is purposeful. So let's look at the first one, um, planned. Look at verse 20 again. And he, Jesus, was foreknown, your version might say predestined, from the foundation of the world. In other words, from before creation even, Jesus was predestined, he was foreknown. Um, when Peter says he was foreknown, he's referring to these previous verses that talk about verse 18, that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers. 
not with perishable things of silver and gold, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he's saying that all of what happened was foreknown. Jesus as a person and Jesus' work as the Savior, as the Lamb of God, was foreknown. It comes from a Greek word that is the same word that we get the English word prognosis. You know, if you go to a doctor, they give you a prognosis of how they think you're going to do. Um, maybe you've made some New Year's resolutions. Maybe you're working on some New Year's resolutions for this year. Um, I'd like to encourage you. That's a good idea. It's good for self-improvement. You know, if, you, if one of your resolutions is to read through the Bible in a year, that's a good way to do it. Just basically four chapters um, a day. I just kind of put a marker in one in Genesis, one in Psalms, one in Isaiah, and one in the New Testament. And then I read one of those chapters. Sometimes if I get into it, I'll read two or three from one section. But I just keep moving those rib ribbons as they go. If you want something a little bit more um, bite-sized, uh, once I did one that I really loved is I just started in the New Testament. And I just read as much as I wanted to do each day and, and then picked up the next day. And just when I got to the end of Revelation, I started again in the New Testament. You could read through the New Testament several times in a year. And it helps you know where things are in the New Testament. So you can do that. But the bad news is that 23% of people fail in the first week. 43% quit by the end of the month, and only 9% finish the year. So be in that 9% if you're going to tackle something. But that's kind of a prognosis, isn't it? It's, it's a guess of how well you're going to do. See, that's not what this word meant in Greek. Uh, the, the word prognosko in Greek means to know for sure before it happens. It's not a guess. It's not just a prognosis. It's a foreknowledge. And Peter says that this is part of the value of the gift of your salvation is that the work that Jesus did in spilling his precious blood was planned beforehand, perfectly. It was foreknown. His incarnation, becoming a man. His humiliation, the emptying himself of the independent use of his divine attributes. His death, atoning work on the cross. His resurrection, conquering the grave. All of these things, all of that atonement, was accomplished and it was planned beforehand. It was foreknown even before the foundation of the world. So the reason that phrase, before the foundation of the world, is important is that Peter is emphasizing something that maybe you've thought about before. Have you ever asked yourself the question, if God knows everything, and he does, and if he can see the future, then why did he allow Adam and Eve to sin? I mean, if there had to be a fruit that if you ate it would be disobedience, why didn't he put that fruit like on Mount Everest or something? Why didn't he, why did he put it right there in the garden? So you see that fruit that looks good? Don't touch it. Why would he do that? I mean, he knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. And he's in control of the future. And he can stop it from happening. And yet, he didn't. And some people think of this test, this idea of, well, well, they had free will, so let's see how they're going to use their free will. It's kind of like a baker who puts something in the oven and then kind of watches to see if it's going to be okay or if it's going to be a flop. And that God had this wonderful plan B, this contingency. Okay, if Adam and Eve do everything they're supposed to, then the whole human race will be sinless and live forever and nobody will have to die. But if they do go the other route, and why would they? And they take the fruit that they're not supposed to, then they'll become mortal, 
they will die, their children will inherit their sin, they will die, and then I will have to come and somehow fix this problem. And the only way to do that is if I go down there and live the perfect life that they now, none of them can, and then bear my own wrath against them on myself, man, I really hope they stick with plan A. And you think God was just standing, like, watching, just eating popcorn, like, what's going to happen? Oh, they blew it. Okay, plan B is in effect. Redemption. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, some Christians talk about this idea that, well, God doesn't know the future. He's like us. He's waiting to see how it plays out, and he's just very competent at kind of making the best out of a bad situation. He works all things to good, even though they're bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There is no plan B. Redemption was plan A. He was foreknown. That means his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection was foreknown before you even existed. Sometimes our family will talk about memories that we have, and my youngest will say, I don't remember that, and then we'll say, you weren't born yet. You were in the mind of God. And so sometimes she'll say, I don't remember that. Was I in the mind of God? <laughs> well, there's a lot that happened where you weren't born yet. It was in the mind of God, and one of those things was your atonement, your redemption. That he, verse 20 says, the lamb and his atoning death was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And, and that he, that Jesus, was the member of the Trinity that would affect this. There was no rock, paper, scissors among the Trinity to figure out who has to go and do the dirty work. This was the plan from the beginning. That Jesus would come and ransom his bride from the curse. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 says that this, this word, this gospel, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was an eternal purpose. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter preaching says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. By the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you Jews killed God by the hands of the Gentiles, the Romans who did the crucifixion. So it wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus, and it wasn't the Romans that killed Jesus. It was the Jews and the Romans, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who killed Jesus. So Jesus' death was not a contingency plan. He was born to die. And it was planned. That should help you appreciate the value of what it is he went through, that he knew he would have to go through it, and he chose to do it anyway. He planned to do it. I hope this gives you more confidence in the promises of Christ that he knows what he's talking about when he makes statements like, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it is that a guess is that a hope no that is that's something you can take to the bank this is all part of the plan i'm going to go to a place and 
prepare a place for you and come back and receive you, John 14. Is that a guess? No, it's a plan. I will be with you. I want you to go into the nations. I want you to go and baptize them and make disciples and teach them everything I taught you, and I will be with you. I will be with you. It's all part of the plan. So God's plan to save you was no afterthought. It was the plan of the ages. So that's the first aspect I want you to note as you appreciate the gift of God that he gave you is that this was his plan all along. Secondly, it was personal. And this is, this is just such a wonderful truth. Look at verse 20 again. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. For your sake. He has another aspect of redemption that makes us appreciate its value is that it was personal. It was for your sake. It was for you. Now, I want to stress that this was not the only reason. You know, some Christians take this to the extreme and they're just like, you know, it's all, their, their worship of Christ actually becomes more man-centered. That everything that happened shows the value of you and how special you are. And so we sing songs about me and what I feel and how I am and rather than songs about God and Christ and the Spirit and what Jesus did for us. So the Bible gives us many reasons why Christ was made manifest in these last times, why he came. He came to be obedient to the Father. It's one of the reasons. We read this morning in the, the um, benediction of Simeon where Simeon says that he came to be a light to the Gentiles and to be the redemption of his people Israel. He came to give hope to all of the pagans who couldn't come to God except through the Jewish nation. He came to give them hope. You can now go directly to God through Jesus. That's one of the reasons he came, was to give hope to us. He also came to redeem his own people that had turned away from him. He came to be obedient to the Father. He came to glorify the Father. He came to demonstrate, demonstrate his love of God for the world. He came to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. He came to set an example for mankind of perfection to please God. He came to fulfill prophecy that had been proclaimed by God. Notice how all of these are very God-centered reasons why Jesus came. He also came to redeem a bride for himself. He came for the joy set before him. All of these are Christ-centered, God-centered, Trinity-centered reasons why Jesus came. But in our text, we have a very precious reason also given. He came for your sake. He came for your sake. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And so here Peter reveals a rare and precious glimpse into the motivation behind our redemption. John Piper says, this should blow us away. We are talking here about the infinitely powerful and wise and holy God of the universe and his one and only divine son. And we are talking about their purpose from the untraceable distance of infinity and eternity to plan an unthinkable penetration into creation. Why? For our sake. That we might be ransomed from a futile manner of life. If that doesn't prove that God takes your behavior and your future seriously, 
what does, unquote. Remember that Peter's telling us, be holy for I am holy. I want you to not conduct yourselves like the unbelievers do. Conduct yourselves in a different way. Why? Because of the preciousness of your redemption. Because of what Jesus Christ went through to ransom you from these futile ways. All the stuff that you've tried that didn't work. Who here has made decisions in your life that at the time you weren't thinking about what the consequences would be? And now you're stuck with those consequences. And you feel hopeless. But he came to ransom you from that. And to give you hope of a new future. And yes, your present might be really, really messed up. Sometimes we scramble that egg so bad, all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again. But there's a future of a king who can make all things new. Galatians 2 verse 20 Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not the emphasis of the reason why Jesus came in the New Testament, but it's certainly there. And Paul knew it. And Paul never got beyond that fact that Jesus Christ Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And he knew he didn't deserve it. But Jesus came for him. And so I love it in Galatians where he says that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Personal redemption. Uh, Thomas, remember when Thomas was finally convinced everyone rags on Thomas because doubting Thomas. He's the one that doubted. He's the one that doubted. Yeah, he was the only one who hadn't seen. Everyone else saw it. It was easy to believe when they saw Jesus and they report to Thomas. He was the only one who wasn't there. I, I have to put my fingers in his side and I have to see the hole in his hand. And then when Thomas sees him, he doesn't need to do any of that. He sees Jesus and he believes. And remember what he said? My Lord and my God. Personal. John 20, verse 28. Psalm 94, verse 22. But Yahweh has become my stronghold and my God, the God of my refuge. There's nothing wrong with you praying that way. When you pray to God, you are my God. I need a stronghold. I need you to be my stronghold. Luke 14, 7. Speaking about the parable of the lost sheep. Just so, I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. That's you. One sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. People who think that they're so well off, spiritually speaking, that they don't need to repent. There's no rejoicing over that. But one sinner, no matter how bad they are, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how bad it is, if you turn your back on that, and you're willing to confess that means to say the same thing God says. You're willing to say that was sin. That was wrong. Please forgive me. There is actual rejoicing in heaven over you. You're not a statistic. You're a child of God. Jesus died for you. So he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. 
you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been to a rock concert um, or you've seen this where, imagine you go to a rock concert and you're there in this crowd and, you know, they've got like 40,000 people in the stadium. And then, um, I mean, what did now, Taylor Swift is like the hot ticket, right? 70,000 people at a time. She's made a billion dollars in, in sales. There's millions and millions of Swifties or whatever, and they're all there at the concert wearing their little friendship bracelets and their T-shirts and cost of fortune. And, and, and they're all listening to her sing. And in the middle of the concert, and I've seen this clip, she'll be in, you know, where, wherever, in Atlanta, and she'll say, I love you, Atlanta. And everyone's like, ah, yeah, she loves me. She loves me. Now imagine that. Imagine you're at that concert, and, and she says, I love you. And everyone's like, yay. And then the next day, you see her at the airport. And you run up to her, and all of her bodyguards kind of get in the way. And you say, no, 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 no. She, she said she loved me. So I'm just here to say hi because she loves me. Well, we understand that she doesn't love you personally. <laughs> she might love the idea of a whole group of you paying for her tickets. <laughs> Who wouldn't? But she doesn't love you. And I think sometimes Christians think that way about God and the church. Maybe they sometimes think of the church as, well, there's these millions and millions of Christians of all of the ages of church history, and you've got all the saints of the Old Testament, you've got all the people in this church, and all the people in all the churches. And so when we say that, you know, Jesus loves you, yeah, but he kind of means he loves the church as a bride, and that is true. But he did all of this for your sake, you personally. And you can say with Paul, he died for me. And so on Judgment Day, the the sad thing is that some people come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And then he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, because I, what, never knew you, you personally. Oh, but I did all these things. I was like part of the church group. I went on that missions trip. We did this thing. We cast out demons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't know you. And so one of the great values of our salvation that should make you appreciate what you have in Christ is that it was personal. Thirdly, it is particular. It is particular. Verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God. Believers in God. So our salvation's planned from before the foundation of the world. It's personal. It's for you personally. And it's particular when I say, this is what you have in Christ, and he did this for you personally, I don't mean every single person in the world. And neither does the Bible. God does not apply the precious blood of Christ to everybody. Because if he did, everybody would be saved, everybody would be in heaven. And there's some people who think that's, that happens. I can do what I want, I can live the way I want, I can ignore God, I can... I can ignore all of his wills and desire and everything and just carry on with my life. And then when I die, I go to heaven. Why? Because Jesus died for me. That's what the Bible says. But if you actually read the Bible, you see, no, it actually doesn't say that. It says that Jesus died for those who believe in him. So Hitler, not going to be in heaven. And, th and that's okay. It'll be better without 
people who hate God hate his people and want to kill them. It'll be better without those people, trust me. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that there will be no liars allowed into heaven, that there will be no thieves allowed into heaven, that there will be no unrighteous people whatsoever. That's bad news for us because we know deep down we're also those people. We'll get to that. But this verse applies the gift of Christ's death to believers, through, to those who through him are believers. Matthew 22, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. The whole world is told to repent. Not all of them do. Acts 17, 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It is true that all are commanded to repent. The invitation is for everybody, but not everybody responds. Not everybody believes. Now, anyone may believe, but the ransom is only applied to those who do believe, who do trust in Jesus. So John 10, verse 26, Jesus says to a bunch of unbelievers, the Jews who wanted to kill him, he says, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. They obey. I give them eternal life. I give who eternal life? I give them eternal life. My sheep who obey me. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who's the them? He's telling a group of people, it's not you. You don't believe because you're not part of my flock. If you were part of my flock, how would we know that you're part of my flock? Because you believe and you obey. And then you're safe. I know we're told, well, but isn't God the savior of all people? Yes, but I want you to know where it says that. It says that in one place in the Bible. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. People sometimes say, well, you're being too harsh. And this whole idea of particular redemption is like too exclusive. Listen, I'm just the messenger. You want to take it up, take it up with the guy that wrote the book. Um, I'm just telling you what it says. Let me tell you what it says in 1 Timothy 4.10. People say, doesn't it say God's the savior of all people? Yes, this is what it says. Paul says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, comma, especially those who believe. So in one sense, God is the Savior of all people. And in another sense, in a special sense, he's the Savior of believers. So God's, Christ's atonement on the cross accomplished something for everybody. And it accomplished something special for somebody. That's what it means, especially for believers. So yes, he's the savior of the whole world because guess where the whole world belongs right now? In hell. And they're not there. Praise God, because I was in the world before I was a believer and he was patient with me. And so unbelievers can have good marriages. Unbelievers can have the joy of having children. Unbelievers can experience so many of God's blessings. Jesus says that God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
He gives so much what we call common grace. Just, just the wonderful blessings of all the good things in life, all the great food that he gives us and that we can all have pets. We can have friends and adventures and exploration and enjoyment and entertainment and all these things. That's open to everybody. And that was bought by the blood of Jesus because nobody deserves even one moment out of hell. Nobody deserves even any of that goodness. And every good gift comes from the Father of lights. Every good gift that they have. But he's the savior of all people, but especially in a very special way for those who believe, we get all of those things and eternal life. And so redemption is particular. You know, I was uh, once invited to a wedding. My wife and I were, op- were invited to a wedding that had an open invitation. Um, it was at our church in California, and there's thousands of people in the church. And this couple was getting married, and they had an open invitation. I think what they meant was in the church, but it was an open invitation. It's not like they check your ID or your membership at the door. And we went, of course, and there were snacks everywhere, finger food and snacks. And it was a great celebration. It was wonderful, and we all ate, and we all had enough. And, and it, it was wonderful. They, they accurately predicted how many people would actually show up. But that open invitation could have gone badly. Because in Los Angeles, there's more than 5,000 people. Imagine millions of people. Imagine it went viral. There's an open wedding, open invitation at this and this address. And there will be food. And millions and millions of people started streaming. But they, they guessed right. So in the same way, God has this open invitation to the whole world. In fact, the command that everybody should come. And anyone who comes, there'll be enough. But God is not only very good at predicting how many will come. He knows for sure. He knows for sure before it even happens. And he makes sure that there's provision. And you can be in that number too. Anyone can. Anyone at any point at any time in the world can be saved. There is nobody in the world who wants to be saved who cannot be saved because there wasn't enough blood to cover them but you must believe. And so this brings us to our fourth and final aspect of the value of our salvation is that it was purposeful. So it was planned, it was personal, it is particular. That should make you appreciate it, that you can be in that number. But it was also purposeful. Look at verse 21. So it was made manifest in the last time for your sake. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him, Jesus, from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. That's the purpose. That's what makes this so valuable. Because the purpose of his death on your behalf for your sake. God raised from the dead. Raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. So Westminster Confession 101, first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this verse tells us that Christ's glory is linked to our redemption. That your salvation, the salvation of sin is not an incidental part of history. It is what gives Christ the most glory. When a sinner repents of sin and chooses the unseen Savior and to believe in his promises... God's renown is made known. 
So the glory that God gives Jesus comes so that we can put our faith in him. Ephesians 3, 7 says it this way, of this gospel I was made a minister to bring to light for everyone what was the plan and mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the demons and the angels and the whole of creation know more about Christ's glory now because of his redemption for us. Sometimes the question about Adam and Eve in the garden gets posed this way. If God knew how bad this world was going to be, and let's face it, it gets dark. And if he knew how much suffering there would be, and how much pain, why did he let that happen? Why didn't he just make it in heaven and, like, not make Satan? Why does there have to be this whole creation with all of the suffering and groaning and death? When nature itself is out to kill us and our own bodies are decaying and our relationships just make life harder and, and, and there's so many wicked people out there. Why? And it's an aspect of philosophy called theodicy, all the different theories of the problem of evil and if God's so powerful and he knows the future, why did he allow the evil? And, I believe it boils down to what Peter's telling us in this verse. Without all of this, we wouldn't know Jesus. We wouldn't know what he was like. Think about all the things you praise him for. Think about all the things you praise God for. His holiness. Well, you don't know what holiness is if you don't have sin. Think about his justice. You don't have justice if there's nothing to punish. Think about his mercy that we thank him for. There's no mercy and forgiveness if there's nothing to be merciful about or forgive us because nobody ever sinned. And even the love, God is love. And from the foundation, from eternity past, this love relationship between the Father and the Son is what makes the Trinity so unique that there was always love. But nobody saw that. And so to put on the love to put love on display, there needed to be this world with all of its suffering and all of its evil so we understand exactly how dark it can be without the light of Jesus, so we can see how lost we would be without the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, that we would see how unloved and lonely we would be without the love of our Savior. That's why he let this happen. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers, authorities, and heavenly places. People say, well, why did the why did the demons go with Satan? Why did they side with Satan against God? Like, duh. You never side against God. I don't think the demons knew who was more powerful. I don't think, I honestly believe that I think Satan looked at God and thought, I can take him. I can take him. Nobody had ever seen the justice and the wrath of God against sin because there had never been any sin. They didn't know. Maybe he won't notice. Maybe he will be, oh, shucks, okay, leave heaven. What are we going to do about it? Nobody understood, no, there is an eternal place of torment for people that reject God. Now we know. I mean, why do the tennis players at Wimbledon play outdoors? It's so much harder with the wind 
and the distraction, you've seen them as they're about to play, they're about to serve, and someone's like, I love you, Serena! Really? You know? Why do they do that? Why don't they just play it all indoors without any spectators? Get it done, can rain, it doesn't matter. And then when we're done, they just say, she won again! Yay! No, that's not what tennis is about. You go to see the skill of the athlete on display. You want to see them win. That's what's happening with the whole plan of redemption. God doesn't just skip scene and create a whole bunch of people that, okay, these are the sinless ones in heaven. No, no, no. You need to see his mercy play out. You need to see his love on display and his power and his wisdom. That's why we're in the middle of all of this. So next time you turn on the news and you think, what is going on here? These are the people running the country? This is the best we can do. There's like 350 million of us. We chose them? Don't worry. God is using all of that to put on display his sovereignty. Using the blunt, rusted tools to build a beautiful artwork so we can give him glory. So my challenge to you this year is how are you doing with giving God glory? How are you doing with serving your purpose here on earth? Are you worried and concerned about you and your little world and your little empire and getting healthier and, and getting richer and whatever it is that you've got planned for this year? Or are you, can you take a step back and say, I'm on a stage of redemptive history that was foreknown and planned, that was, that was so personal that Jesus did this for me. That was particular that only people who believe are going to be saved and, and I need to help people believe and that it was purposeful. It was put on the, dis, the display of Christ's glory for the world to see. And I get to be part of that. Work those into your resolutions. Be resolved to live to the glory of God. Just like the Parker 75 pin, you know, that value doesn't increase or decrease based on your appreciation, but your appreciation of it can grow the more you know about it. I challenge you, read the word. Get to know Jesus Christ more this year. His value stays the same, priceless. But your appreciation of his value and what he did for you will grow and grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder of the value of our redemption. I pray that we would appreciate it, that that appreciation would lead us to live holy lives, that we would turn our back on sin, that we would serve you in your kingdom, that we would live for eternal purposes, that we would not be anxious and upset and angry about so many trivial things that happen in our day, and that this coming year would be one of us living with the sole purpose of giving glory to you, and in that way being fulfilled in the purpose you created us for. We thank you for all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.